Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a very special guest by the name of Mark Rober. And while I was on vacation, I stumbled across a TED Talk called The Super Mario Effect, uh, How to Trick Your Brain into Learning More. And of course, I was immediately, you know, as a child of the 80s growing up playing Nintendo, uh, growing up playing video games and playing Super Mario and playing Mario Brothers, I was like, all right, I got to watch this. And I was completely blown away by what Mark was saying. He was, you know, talking about this effect that had so much to do with things like failure and uh, success and resiliency. And I was just captivated. And so I started to research him more. And I found out that he is an American engineer. He's an inventor. And he is a huge YouTube personality who has a channel of over three and a half million followers. Uh, He's best known for his YouTube videos on popular science, do-it-yourself gadgets, and creative ideas. Um, He has also done some really incredible things, which blew me away when I started to research him. But he was, uh, he's also a part of NASA for over nine years. And uh, he worked in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. So he worked there for about nine years, and seven of those Uh, Mark spent time working on the Curiosity rover, which is now on Mars. He actually designed and delivered hardware on several of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory missions, uh, including a bunch of acronyms that we talk about and unpack in the actual episode and in the Mars Science Laboratory. So, I mean, this guy has done some incredible things. We're going to talk a little bit about science um, we're going to talk a little bit about space and you know building something that that goes to Mars. We're going to talk a little bit about spending time working at NASA and what he learned from there. Um, but the beginning of this episode is really really focused in on shifting our mindsets around failure and lessons from gamifying our learning, which is really quite fascinating. And uh, we dive into how Mark has applied it in his. Uh, business in his career in his in his life and how we can actually apply that in ours so without any further delay actually one more quick delay for all the guys that are out there don't forget to head on over to the uh, man talks community on facebook you just go over to facebook type in man talks community join there's over three and a half thousand men from around the world we have some great conversations on there i would love to see you a part of it so join up please hit me up when you uh, get in there and I do live Q&A sessions and videos in there to support all the men. Uh, so feel free to join. And if you're wanting to dive deeper, work with me and get connected to an incredible group of powerful men, I encourage you to check out the Alliance. We are going to be starting a new group here in the next few months. So you can go to mantalks.com forward slash the dash Alliance and uh, check that out. Sign up if it feels like it's aligned with you. So now without any further delay, Please welcome Mr. Mark Rober. Good to be here. So like I said in the, in the intro, you know, I, I heard your TED Talk. I really went down like the rabbit hole of geeking out, watching your YouTube channel and some of the other stuff that you've done and created. So it is, a, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you here today. And I just want to dive in with the, with the question that I always ask people, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, 
to me, this is there's like such a clear answer. This is like an easy. It's probably the easiest question I think you asked me all day. And for me, so I I went to school for mechanical engineering and I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 2004. And so I was looking for a job. And I grew up in Orange County on the West Coast. So I really wanted to find a job out there. I, I proactively found a company called Caterpillar. So they make like construction equipment. They're based in San Diego. I sought them out, sent them my resume, which, which is pretty rare. Usually you have a chance for getting an interview of just someone, you know, is coming to your school for a career fair or something. Anyways, I like weaseled my way in to get an interview. I did okay on the phone interview. So they flew me out and... uh I was so prepared for this interview. Like I was stoked. I really wanted something on the West Coast. And to be honest, I didn't have a lot of options. And the interview, they, they, the, the first like four interviews went really well. Uh, I felt like I was crushing it. And then one of the guys I was supposed to interview with wasn't there. And somebody replaced him. And I got into his office and he started asking me really tough technical questions. And up to that point, most of the questions were more like behavioral interviews. Even though it was an engineering position, it was more like, tell me about a time when you had to do this. And they're like asking questions about like my personality. And for whatever reason, I don't know, I just wasn't prepared to be asked technical questions, which in hindsight seems really dumb. But I got super flustered. And basically, I started like not making things up, but... uh so like, as an example, this won't make sense if, if you're not really big in engineering, but like, I was like, oh, I just love my fluid dynamics class because you learn things like, why do, why do airplanes, why do jets, jumbo jets have rounded fronts uh, of, of the jet and like fighters, you know, that they have like pointed jets or pointed like noses. As soon as I said, I was like, I can't actually remember why that is. <laughs> but I just remember <laughs> hearing it in class and thinking that's interesting. Anyways, he's like, oh, and why is that? I'm like, it has to do with like the mock number being like 0.4 and I kind of make stuff up. He's like, mm-hmm. And he let me like say this whole like four or five sentences. And he's like, actually, this is what it is. He, he pulls a book off the shelf, flips to a page like he has marked and like shows me passages that basically prove that I was just completely wrong. And uh, <laughs> bottom line is I didn't get the job. And the, the when I asked for feedback, I was like, why is that? And they're like, you know, everyone actually had really positive things to say. But this one guy, he was pretty against it. Like he didn't think that you had the technical chops. And it's like, oh man, it hurt really bad. Like, cause I wanted that job so bad. Anyways, a week later, when I'm still like in mourning, uh, a professor comes in and is like, hey, there's this company called JPL down in Southern California who are looking for resumes. So I threw my resume. JPL happens to stand for Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They are uh, one of the centers for NASA. And so I threw my resume in the stack and bottom line is I also got to go out and fly an interview with them. And same thing happened. I got into the room with this old guy named Don Bickler. He's like a legend there. He invented like a bunch of like really cool things for the rovers on Mars. He's like, all right, come back in an hour. He threw me a whiteboard marker. And then it was just me and him on, on the whiteboard for an hour. And he's asking me technical questions. And the difference was... I was more prepared for it mentally, and I knew that if you don't know an answer, it's okay to just be like, I don't know, you know, I haven't really studied that. And that happened two or three times. And the punchline is when when my the interview person came back, he's like, yeah, this guy's great, hire him. And so we told him that right on the spot. And so as a result, I, I got to work for NASA for, for nine years. And that ended up sort of being critical when I started doing some more YouTube stuff. 
you know, the press loves that angle, you know, NASA engineer invents stupid way to skin a watermelon or just whatever, right? They love putting NASA engineer on there. And uh, if I had been working for Caterpillar, it just doesn't have the same ring, you know, like Caterpillar engineer. Uh, right. So in, in hindsight, it's like, oh man, it was such a, uh, a fortunate thing to not have gotten the job. And as a result, I was able to learn a really valuable experience that to this day, even in working in any professional capacity, I'm not afraid to say, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and don't even start going down the path of just shooting from the hip and being cavalier about answers. So yeah, I, I love it. I think I think far too often we are sort of like terrified of speaking the truth about something that we don't know. And there's sort of this uh, I- ignorance about it where we're worried. I think it comes down to shame and, and judgment, right? Like we're worried that somebody will think less of us if we don't have an answer. And so oftentimes we we just try and, and make it up, which, you know, for the people that know that we're wrong makes us look even more foolish because we're pretending to be right, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And you can never like take that back once. In fact, uh for a company I work for now, what am I, I'm sort of like, I really enjoy doing the interviews, but one of the things I'll do is I'll ask someone like, what do you feel your like competency is with beam bending or something? And I'll ask, you know, just some, some technical area of engineering and I'll get a rating from them. And then I'll ask them a question about that thing. <laughs> and then depending on how the answer, I now have like, Every other statement they've said uh, in the interview, like, is basically calibrated, right? Because if they're like, oh, I'm a 10, and then they blow the question, then I'm like, okay, so all that other stuff you said, that's hard for me to check. I now have, like, a a factor to apply to it. (laughs) Nice. Nice. I like it. I like it. And how does this experience or does this experience play into the TED Talk that you gave? Because I want to talk a little bit about this Super Mario effect that that you talked about in your TED Talk. And there are so many great lessons. So maybe you can just unpack what it is and why it's important. We can kind of go from there. Sure. So the Super Mario effect, so I just gave this TED Talk like a couple of months ago. But I think so the, the, the one phrase tagline of it is like focusing on the princess and not the pits to learn more and see more success or something like that. Ultimately, it's like it has to do with failure, right? When you played as a kid, Super Mario Brothers, no one ever picks up the controller and falls into a pit for the first time. It's just like, I am so ashamed. I am never going to play that again. Like, how embarrassing. Uh, you know, that was a terrible experience. It's like, no. You're like, oh, okay, there's a pit right there. Okay, I got, I got f- f- three more lives. All right, let's do this again. Next time I'm coming at it with a little more speed and I'm going to jump a little bit more, right? And your focus and your attention and your obsession was all about you know, rescuing princess from the evil Bowser. You, you, you weren't like all super concerned about how you died. In fact, like, you know, the next day when you showed up at school, your friends didn't ask you like, oh, how did you die? And they didn't want details on all that. It was like, dude, did you beat Bowser? Did, you know, like it was always on the end goal. And as a result, you get really good at the game really fast. And I think so often in life, we sort of, we don't translate that over to real world problems. And we focus so much on the pits and the failures and then it makes it hard to move on. And, and this observation actually is backed by data uh, that I did uh, or that I collected, which is sort of like the whole genesis of the TED Talk was, I, so I have a YouTube channel that um, uh, sort of popular, I guess, with science type of stuff. And so uh, I asked my followers to take a, a simple computer programming test. And 
it's one of these things where you have like code blocks. And so your goal is to get your car to the end of this maze and you would arrange these code blocks. Uh, like if the car hits a blue square, go right. And at any rate, you're doing like sort of rudimentary programming, but using blocks. So you don't need to know all the syntax. And uh, so 50,000 of them took the test. This is just on like an unlisted video I'd sent out. And from that, we collected a bunch of data. And the truth was, we actually didn't care. I said I wanted to show that like anyone could learn to code, but that wasn't the objective at all. What they didn't know is that we like secretly gave them a couple different versions of the test. And ultimately, the biggest difference was that in one, you lost five points from your starting 200 points if you didn't get it right. Uh, each time you did it, you would lose points. And bear in mind, these are like completely meaningless, fake. No one ever will ever see these in real life, like meaningless internet points. <laughs> and in the other one, if you failed, uh, there's just no penalty. It said, oh, you didn't do it. Try again. And you kept your 200 points, right? And that minor difference across the 50,000 data points we collected showed that those who were penalized for getting it wrong and sort of saw feeling in a negative light they solved they they eventually solved the puzzle on average like 50% or something half the time those who weren't penalized solved it on average like 70% of the time or, or something like that it's like a delta of like 16 to 20% uh so it was statistically significant but then like this seemed almost hard to believe until we looked at another piece of data which was that those who were seeing more success and not being penalized, the fact was they tried it 12 times on average, whereas the people who were getting penalized tried it five times on average. Mm. So ultimately, it's like it's because they stuck with it and kept going for it. Like that's what made them see more success eventually and learn more. So it was literally the only difference was how people framed the learning process. And when those who are framing it in a way that was really negative and focusing on the failures, they quit and didn't learn as much versus those who framed it in a way that they were just stoked about, you know, trying to solve this thing. Uh, and I, I feel like that really, uh, that really, there's like a life lesson there. And that's like real data with the real issue. And for me personally, I mentioned the TED Talk, like I've seen this in in my life. So every month I'll make YouTube videos, usually it's like a different build or something. So I have like the world's largest super soaker or the world's largest uh, Nerf gun. And what I really wanted, I use my mechanical engineering background basically to make something cool. And I really wanted at one point to make a dartboard where you get a bullseye every time, which is, turns out it's like, it sounds simple, but it's a really challenging problem. And uh, I just knew I wanted to do this. And it took me three years where again, usually the videos will take me like two to three months to do a build or something. But after three years, we finally got it using like six motion controllers, a Vicom motion capture system, it, just a bunch of hardware. But we got it where, you know, you, you, won't, you have the same time as it takes someone to blink. That's how, that's how fast the board yeah. has to figure out where the dart's going to land and then move itself. So it uses like six stepper motors on strings to move the board. But anyways, uh, it eventually worked after three years. But my point is, is like through that whole process, I like I can honestly say that there was never a time where we failed where I'm like, this is it's just not going to work. Like and I got super discouraged. It was very, very similar to like falling in a pit with Super Mario's is like, ah, man, yeah, that approach just won't work. And maybe I let it sit on the shelf for like a couple months or something. We didn't go back to it. But it was always like, 
no big deal. Like we'll figure something out. But in my mind, I, I knew we would be successful with it. And as a result, it it was a thing that ended up happening. Um, but I think I'll just say, say one more point is like, this is more than just like, oh, you know, have a positive attitude or, you know, some Pollyanna way to think about it. Just like never give up because those imply that you actually want to uh, like quit. Uh, like your true desire isn't to move on, but you're like having to uh, sort of go against your true desire to quit and just like power through it. If you're doing, if you're viewing your challenges in this way, like you want to keep uh, like playing basically, right? In the same way you wanted to keep playing Super Mario Brothers. In the same way, you know, uh, people wanted to keep trying the coding puzzle. Like no one was forcing them to do that or watching them in their room. Like the people who weren't being penalized literally wanted to do it two and a half times more than those who didn't, who were quitting. And so it's this, it's almost like a, a weird mind hack where if you can really view it in this way, you're stoked about doing it. And as a result, you can learn more and accomplish more. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because it almost seems like, I mean, one of the things that you said in your in your TED talk that I, I found to be really, like really stood out to me was failure is not a bug, it's a feature, you know, in, in reference to the video game. It's like failure in a video game isn't a glitch. It's not an error. It really is part of the part of the task. It's part of the the journey that you go on in a video game. And we seem to be very accepting of that. Like I remember playing, you know, like Goldeneye, right? <laughs> on my Nintendo 64 with with my buddies. And I would fail all the time, but I was totally fine with trying over and over and over and over and over again, you know, endless amounts of time. But when it comes to things like relationships, when it comes to things like business, we seem to have this desire to get it right instantaneously. And if we fail, there's automatically something wrong with us. And I love the idea of what you're saying, where it's almost like you start, you know, become a little obsessed with how to do it right, you know, and then the failures, it's not that they don't matter. It's that they become more data, they become more information that are pointing us in the direction of how we can do something right. So how how do you feel like this not only uh, supports us in learning more efficiently, but how how do you see this sort of gamified model of learning um, shifting the way that we teach people moving forward? Yeah, and, and, and just to comment on what you said there, I, I think it's a really, I mean, when I mentioned that in the TED Talk I showed, and this is sort of a popular cartoon, but it says like, there, there's two frames in this cartoon. It says, you know, our expectations, and it shows a guy and there's a there's a linear ramp to the right and there's a flag and there's no obstacles right and that's what what we expect expect our challenges to look like just a little bit of a slope and then it hits the flag but it's like reality and it shows this pit with rocks and then another mountain and then another valley with like water and a boat and then another basically it's a really rocky road and eventually there's this flag on the right and that's and that's what life's challenges typically are like basically a lot of ups and downs and failures. And yeah, that's where I said real life looks like the bottom and that's not a, that's not a bug. That's a feature. And I think the point of that is all of those failures are what give the eventual success meaning. Like I would even argue with Goldeneye, that's a good example. If that game were like super easy and you could kill everyone, like no one would buy it. You wouldn't enjoy it. You wouldn't want to play it. Right. Uh, it's those failures that like after failing and failing and failing and eventually succeeding, like everything in your life, I, I promise, or I, I would guess that actually holds meaning and value to it, whether it's a relationship or a degree or something, 
comes from that experience of setback, 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 and eventually succeeding. And I mentioned just like, uh, you know, the most meaningful high fives of my adolescence were the ones where I said, dude, I finally beat Bowser last night. And that was like <laughs> amazing. So it's like, uh, it's if, but if, if you can view those failures in a way where it's like, yeah, this is just a, another thing. Like I, I died, but I still have eight lives left. What did I learn? And you're stoked to keep pushing on. I think that's a really cool way to sort of like frame your life's challenges. And I, I think, you know, to your, your question about how do we then take this and, um, apply it to like teaching people stuff? Um, you know, this is kind of the concept. I think it's another. Uh, mastery learning is, I, I think some Khan Academy has, uh, he has a really good TED talk, Sal Khan, about this concept of, you know, it, it this kind of has a lot to do with mastery learning, which I think schools are using more and more nowadays and in, in integrating computers where it's like more of a personalized way where you don't move on until you've mastered the thing. I think that's a corollary. Um, but this is kind of what I do. I mentioned like, uh, with my YouTube channel, like a lot of people have these negative connotations when it comes to science. And so I, I always have like some sort of science principle to like teach people. But, uh, I, I say that it's sort of similar to my approach to science is uh, similar to velociraptor hunting patterns. So, uh, I'll bring people in <clears throat> with this like catchy, cool looking thing. Uh, so they click on the video and, and watch it. And then when they least expect it, there's the, you know, like a Jurassic Park, the the velociraptor, the left comes in and it's like clever girl. And then <laughs> she gets the guy. So when they least expect it, I hit him with some, some super dope science. Um, so I'm, I'm always like striking that balance where I, I try and make the videos engaging to like a large audience. But at the same time, I, I definitely want to expose them to science in such a way that it's a positive experience especially to counter if they've had maybe a, a, some cruddy teachers in school where they struggled and therefore they associate it really negatively. I think the more you can help someone learn something in a way that doesn't feel threatening and in a way that's interesting and, and engaging, uh, the more you're going to be able to create that shift in their brain and actually leave them with something meaningful that makes an impact versus just sort of glazes glances on by. Mm, yeah, I, I like that. I really, I really like that. And I think that kind of brings us into a, you know, the, one of the other things that I really wanted to discuss with you is in and around innovation. You know, I think one of the things that I've seen you do really well in your, uh, in your YouTube channel, in your TED talk is your approach to innovation and the, the integration of creativity in a medium that would normally be seen as as strictly analytical or very data driven and very dry. And so I'm curious as to getting some insight into how you define innovation and how you see innovation innovation shifting in the technological space today. It's a good uh that's a good question. I'm a fan. I get a lot of uh, people will tweet me or send me an email where someone took one of my videos and they sort of like copied it or maybe they like did a tweak on it or, you know, uh, a lot of times. Uh, yeah, basically people trying to stick up for me being like, oh, this guy totally ripped you off. And, you know, my uh, philosophy is like nothing is truly original. And that's even that statement isn't original, right? Like I've heard other people say something similar. Uh, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, that, that type of thing. And to me, creativity is about like synthesis. And it's always like, 
who can take the parts that exist and maybe put them together in a way that's new and different. Um, so one of the things that, you know, when it comes to creativity, inspiration is like, I just love like putting stuff in my brain. Like I try to listen to, uh, maybe I'll listen to about a, 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 an audiobook a week or something um, just while I'm doing dishes or work around the house or exercising or driving or something. Uh, I end up browsing Reddit a lot, which could be viewed as a waste of time. But in my line of work, it's like, it's like just putting stuff in my brain. Uh, and then what I find is then I'll see something and then I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this thing. It's like, ooh, if you combine those things, right? Uh, or maybe if I did the same thing, but in a different way, uh, you can just like draw on previous experiences. And I feel like that is to make those connections. I feel like that's to be able to make those connections. To me, that that defines like a, a creative individual. I work with some people. Um, so I actually still have a real job working for a technology company. Uh, large technology company in the Bay area. I don't, I don't work full time, but between that and the YouTube thing, but I still work with, I work with some really, really smart people. And to me, the most creative, the ones who come up with the coolest um, sort of solutions are those who are, are very technical, but they also have like an artistic side, like those who can meld this right and left brain thing uh, really well. Uh, and, and like, that's where the innovation comes because a lot of times if you're just like really good with the numbers, right those type of people tend to be very rigid in their thinking. And those tend to be the people who are sort of the critics, right? And someone comes up with an idea and they're like, oh, that'll never work because of X, Y, and Z. But it's like, yeah, eventually they solve those X, Y, and Z. But if you're so analytical and critical, then you, you'll never you'll never like let your brain go to that spot to say this is a possibility. And then conversely, if it's like you're just creative, I think maybe you you might would go down a lot of paths that are sort of dead ends because you don't realize uh, without doing a lot of work that it, that it is a dead end. So I feel like those who can sort of meld those two things, at least in sort of like the engineering space, are those who see the most success and that are the most innovative and quote unquote creative. And that's certainly something that I strive to do as well is just to sort of um, meld those two things. And I would say the, the biggest trick is just sort of, uh, yeah, being prolific in the information you take in and the thoughts and the thinking you have on the stuff and then see, and then see where that lands. And sometimes you just get lucky. Nice. Yeah. I was going to say like, one of the things that, that I'm really curious about is, is what, you know, what was your upbringing like that sort of, <laughs> that sort of made you uh, it made you curious about both sides of the spectrum because I think in in many ways people are looking at how they can cultivate both sides. You know, how do you how do you strengthen the left brain? How do you strengthen the right brain? How do you, you know, amalgamate and start to really bring together these two parts of you know analytical, data driven, and the very creative side? So when you look back, you know, Steve Jobs said you can only connect the dots backwards. And, uh, and I think it's, I think it's so true. When you look back at, at your life, what were some of the markers that really led you towards being able to, to merge creativity and engineering or creativity and the, the logical brain? Yeah, like, so I think I'm a parent now. And so that is something like I think about for like, as being a dad. Uh, and, and for me, it's like, I would definitely say, especially my mom, was a big part in sort of fostering that. Like I can remember very clearly 
I was five years old and, you know, she was asking us to help with dinner. We did chores and stuff. And she asked me to cut onions and I started cutting onions and started crying. And I was like, ah, I had an idea. So I ran upstairs and I got our like swim goggles and I came down and I know that this is like a widely known like life hack thing now. And they even like sell onion goggles. But uh, at the time, I remember my mom like making such a big deal about that. She totally laughed and she took a picture. I actually have a picture of me cutting the onions, you know, uh, and just the sort of positive reinforcement with uh, regards to 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 like thinking creatively and to engaging that part of like discovery and learning that was always like positively reinforced. And I think that really uh, made a difference for me because it was something I was excited to, you know, show adults in my life that I was like uh, fostering. So uh, I feel like that is, is, is probably one of the biggest things. Um, but then on top of that, you know, it's, it's so hard. And I also want to caveat me saying anything on this podcast. Like I am not an expert in anything. So take everything I say with like a grain of salt. I'm always so hesitant to like take the role of like, well, actually, here's the answer. Because I, I do feel that, uh, you know, people do come pre-programmed in some way. But there also is like the nurture side where you can um, make that uh, grow that into something that can bloom more. But, I, you know, I've always been, I would say, fairly uh, a curious uh, individual. But and so I think that curiosity plays well with the Super Mario effect concept where it's like, if there's something that I'm interested in, uh, and, and you know, wants that I can learn, the approach isn't like, I have to do this thing and take this test. It's like, what is that about? You know, and what's amazing about today is like this thing called Google, where it's like, that's that's one of the things that I think plays to uh, the advantage. There's so much infrastructure today where if like you want to learn something, like you can learn it. Uh, so it's like the the victory goes to those who just have that desire and who can view it in a way where they're just like scratching an itch of the curiosity and innovation because the tools are there to do it so well, right? You know, before, if you wanted to learn, how does a, why is, why is the sky blue? Or, you know, how did, how do steam engines work, you know, or what's the deal with electricity or, you know, any question like that before you'd have to like go to a library or talk to some professor. And, but now it's like, you can Google anything or go on YouTube and there's amazing videos that can really help your brain wrap, wrap around what it is. So, Basically, I think that's a great way to cultivate this, maybe learning to be more creative and stuff is sort of, um, and innovative is sort of just like feeding that wolf, Mm -hmm. you know, feeding that beast in your brain that is kind of curious and then like scratching that itch and then, and then learning a little bit more and then learning a little bit more. And I think everyone goes through periods in their life where they're like more into that than others. And I, I find um, I went back and got my master's um, in mechanical engineering while I was working at NASA. During that period while I was in school, I did find like my brain was in a more like opened uh, state where I was just like it's even especially more especially like curious about the world and stuff. So yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a good way to cultivate that is just to like feed it and and to have success with it and then just to kind of see where it flows from. I like it. I, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're saying is that it's not just about feeding the one wolf, you know, feeding the one wolf of analysis or logic, um, or just feeding the one side of creativity, but really being able to 
feed the wolf of curiosity and let that take you in whatever direction that that it's meant to take you in and and to learn. I think you know when I look at and reflect on my on my own life, you know, I went from doing construction and 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 working this very different field from going to getting a degree in music and and singing opera and doing classical music and that was simply because of a curiosity almost almost nothing more than a curiosity of like what would happen can i do this and and i i haven't done anything with my with my music degree necessarily but it did ignite that curiosity that opened up the floodgates that led me into a very different direction in my life so i really I think there's a lot of immense value in what you're saying around curiosity, uh, which which brings me to my next question around uh, around your time at NASA. Like you, you've you've talked about that. I'm curious as to one of uh, one of the, the coolest projects that you got to work on. I don't know if you can talk about all of them, but um, I'm curious as to like one of the coolest projects that you got to work on in your time there, and and just some of the lessons that you learned while being within that organization. Yeah, I think, uh, so I was there for nine years. Seven of those were working on the Curiosity rover. I, I made a video about that once it landed. But so, yeah, that, that certainly is the one that stands out the most. And about half the time I worked on the rover, um, I was working on the Sky Crane, which is like the jetpack that lowers it to the ground. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the time I was working on um, the rover itself. I had some hardware I was responsible for where the arm would go dig in the dirt and it would get a dirt sample and then it needs to dump it into the belly of the rover where it does the analysis. And so I designed the mechanism to sort of accept that sample into the belly of the rover. So uh, if if that mechanism, door mechanism to accept it didn't work, like, you know, this whole $2 billion mission was sort of like <laughs> pointless. No pressure. So that was like, that added a little bit of extra pressure. To this day, that is still working strong, happy to say. So like that experience was really cool because... You know, there's 3,000 people who are working on this thing. You work on it for seven years, like blood, sweat, tears. And it all comes down to seven minutes because you basically launch from Earth. Uh, it takes about nine months to get there, traveling at 25,000 miles per hour, which is sort of hard to put your head around. But it's like uh, five times faster than a, a, a bullet. Uh, or I like to think of it as if you actually do the math, it's like 75 football fields in a half a second. So imagine yourself at the 50 yard line of like a soccer pitch or football field. And you see this thing, you know, you have, uh, like whatever, 30 something football fields to the left and to the right. And this thing just like flies by in a half second. That's crazy. And you coast too. So you, you fire the jets and because there's no air resistance, you just, you, you coast at that speed for nine months. That's how far Mars is away. Anyways, you get to the upper atmosphere and you have seven minutes to go from that 25,000 miles an hour down to like a nice two miles an hour. So the rover lands nice and safety. And first, you have a parachute, <laughs> fires, and that gets rid of 99% of your energy. And then you, or sorry, your heat shield first, <laughs> and that gets rid of 99% of your kinetic energy. And that remaining 1%, then you have a parachute, <laughs> it fires. And then that gets rid of 99% of that last 1%. And then finally, we have the retro rockets. And they fire and the rover comes down on a little shoelace strings and then lands, cuts those, and the sky crane thing goes off and crashes. So seeing that happen real time with all my coworkers, like it's, there's very few scenarios where it like kind of worked. It's very binary. Either like it makes it to the, in the, you know, to the surface of Mars in a smoldering heap or it lands safely and actually works. And uh, thankfully, 
uh, it worked. And when we're all sitting there together, it was only a matter of like uh, a minute or two from the has cams, low resolution cameras on the front that look for hazards. It sent back this picture of you see the Martian surface and then you just see the shadow of the rover. You don't even see the rover because it can't like take a selfie, but you see its shadow and you know that's exactly how it should look. Everything's in, in one piece. And that is like beyond chills for us to see that image just kind of scroll up as it gets downloaded from outer space. And uh, yeah, that was one of the coolest moments of my life. And one of the coolest to this day, like of all the picture, maybe top three of my favorite pictures in the whole world is that really low res 640 pixels by 400, uh, you know, black and white grainy image of, of the rover's shadow on Mars. It's just so, so cool. There again, Tons of setbacks, right? This is this this is beating Bowser. Tons of setbacks for everyone in the whole project. You know, lots of late nights. You know, we had lots of failures along the way with testing and stuff. But with each of them, it's like, okay, we need to overcome this. And then finally landing on the surface of Mars, where it's still roving around today. It was just that was pretty awesome from like a professional level. Yeah, man, no doubt. That's that's incredible and sort of like a, a once in a lifetime experience that I, I would imagine will will stay with you for a very, very long time. And, you know, I'm, I would, <laughs> I almost like, I feel like I could get into like a, a whole, a whole episode with you simply around, you know, like what that, what that experience was like and building it and the intricacies of that. And I would love to geek out on that. But I think, you know, just because we're pressed for time, I'm, I'm a little bit more curious around your, uh, your sort of opinion or insight on on the importance of exploring space and and where you see the future really being for space exploration. Yeah, I think there's a lot of arguments. W one of the other um, projects I worked on at so I worked seven of the nine years was working on the rover. The other two were working on a project called SMAP, which is like soil moisture active passive, basically. It's a big thing that goes up. It's part of the um, a constellation of satellites that look at the Earth and give us information about the Earth. What this one specifically did is it it could map the entire world. I forget some of the specific facts, but the punchline is it can look at the soil moisture levels all across Earth um, in a matter of like two days. And so the benefit to this is now we're collecting. This is another like vital sign we're collecting of Earth. Um, of like the heartbeat of the earth to tell people like, hey, guess what? There is a drought coming. And, you know, especially developing countries or, hey, you're planting here, but instead you should plant your crops here or something like that. And so this project costs, I think it was like something like um, $400 million or something. But it's this concept of like, people are like, oh, we're wasting money on space. Why would we do that? But it's like, it's this whole teach a man to fish versus, you know, give a man a fish. Because that's an investment that we invested in ourselves and in Earth. And now, you know, for $400 million, you could feed all of Africa for like a half a day if you like calculate it out, right? But now for that same $400 million, like we can, they can feed themselves better by having information and knowledge that will empower them to, you know, feed themselves in a more, in a better way. And so like, that's a type of argument, I think that, sometimes gets overlooked when it just myopically people are like, well, there's starving people right now on earth or there's people who need help here in our country. Why would we send stuff to space? But it's like, 
you have to invest in the future. Like if we all thought like that, everyone would still be living in caves, right? Like you have to reach out and think of new things, sometimes not knowing what the exact output would be and like how successful it would be. But that knowledge kind of, you know, then gives way to further knowledge that then comes back and helps everyone a ton. Like it's, it'd be like asking Christopher Columbus to, to tell Queen Isabella about the polio vaccine or the internet and Google, you know, when he was pitching to sail his ships over to find a new spice route. Uh, you just don't know what the future holds, but as a result, you know, and now there's some metrics to look at, like the world is in a bad place. But when you look at other metrics, like poverty levels, you know, infant mortality rate, mortality rates, uh, you know, basically how many people are starving, like we are crushing that. Like as a world, we are way better than we've ever been. And it's not even close. It's totally trending in that direction. Mm -hmm. So much of that comes from technology. So obviously I'm a huge proponent of, the space. And I, I think uh, of space exploration and, you know, one argument is like, Hey, we really ought to back, have a backup plan here uh, and make, you know, and make humans a multi-planetary species basically, uh, which is, you know, that's Elon's big thing, Elon Musk with getting to Mars and putting a base up there. And it's certainly just a matter of time. And I, they say that could be like the next like trillion dollar economy is basically space exploration and it'll probably start like privatized, like where you have people going up and doing space flights and stuff. But um, there's a lot of resources out in outer space. And I think I think for sure, if you zoom forward 100 years, uh, that's, that, that'll be a much bigger sort of part of our everyday lives and influencing us in, in ways that are really hard to predict, right? Yeah. But I think it will be a, definitely a positive, beneficial thing. So I think what NASA does and... The other companies like SpaceX. I think it's fantastic. Like NASA doesn't see SpaceX as a threat. They help bring the launch down for a lot of our satellites by a factor of like 10. Uh, so that element of privatization was great. It allows NASA to focus more on the really cool stuff and the research stuff. You know, currently uh, the big project at JPL is building a submarine that's going to go out to one of the moons around Saturn and uh, go down. There's, we have a, there's a hard icy crust and we know the core is, is like molten. So somewhere in between there, there's like a 70 degree ocean. So we're going to send uh, like submarine out there to go underneath it, the ice and see what eats it basically. <laughs> uh, but like, that's the type of thing that uh, a private company wouldn't be invested in doing, but like just having those, like pushing just for the sake of exploration and knowledge, like having someone to do that. And it's a very, very small part of like the national budget. It's like, if, if the budget was a hundred pennies, it's less than half of a penny. And most people think it's like 20 to 25 pennies. They've done polls. Mm -hmm. So it's like for a very, very, very small amount, we get a lot of these big returns back on our investment. So obviously I'm a huge fan of like the space program and all those things that go with it. No, it's great, man. I mean, I think that really puts it into context and, and, you know, makes a very, valid point about why it's relevant and you know one of the things that you said there is like you know humanity is progressing and there's <clears throat> on on so many different fronts it's progressing and we can see that in the data and there's two great books that came to mind when you're saying that one is called the righteous mind by jonathan Haidt, and the other one is and i think it's called enlightenment now by S stephen pinker and there's so much data you know, from research and studies in those books that really show the progress of humanity while still taking a very 
uh, while still taking a very like sort of realistic approach that we're not done by any means and we still have work to do, which is why we need to continue to fund programs like NASA and, you know, like some of these other things that you've been talking about so that we can learn beyond, you know, beyond where we are right now. So I really appreciate uh, you and your insight. And I feel like we could jam for so long. And unfortunately, we're, we're, we're out of time. Uh, so maybe maybe I'll have to bring you back on the show in a few months to really dig into some of these topics. But thank you so much for joining me on the show, Mark. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, I always feel weird doing these types of things because I don't feel like an expert in anything by any means. But uh, it's always fun to have these conversations. So I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome, brother. Well, I uh, I totally understand. You don't have to be an expert in one thing, but an, uh, a learning amateur in everything. And that can go a long way too. So thanks for everybody for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Uh, we now have all of these being launched out on YouTube. So check us out there. And don't forget to man it forward. Share this podcast episode with just one person. It goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Thank you.